This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Bertha Petrusky, a Baha'i now living on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, who spent nine years in Bulgaria. Before playing that interview, I want to play an audio clip of a statement by the Baha'is to the House of Representatives International Relations Committee Subcommittee on Africa, Global Human Rights, and International Operations on June 30, 2006. What Ms. Kit Bigelow describes in this statement is unchanged since this statement was made. Uh, Ms. Bigelow. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. We also have submitted a written statement, which we hope will be accepted, and I have a summary of those comments. Without objections, order. Thank you. My name is Kit Bigelow, Director of External Affairs of the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of the United States. I would like to thank the subcommittee for asking us to testify about the situations of the Baha'i communities in Iran and Egypt. We would also like to thank Congress for its long-time support. It has passed eight concurrent resolutions on the Iranian Baha'is. Congressmen Kirk and Lantos have just introduced H. Conres 415. We hope even more members will become co-sponsors and wish to express our gratitude to Congressmen Hyde and Smith, co-sponsors of several resolutions and main supporters in efforts to assist Iranian Baha'is. The Baha'i communities in Egypt and Iran are threatened by deliberate government strategies dedicated to their eventual destruction. In both cases, the situations have recently worsened. In Iran, where the Baha'i faith began in the 19th century, Baha'is are the largest religious minority with 300 to 350,000 people. The Islamic regime regards the Baha'i faith as apostasy and Baha'is as unprotected infidels with no legal rights. Since 1979, more than 10,000 have been dismissed from their jobs. Baha'is have been barred from institutions of higher education. And more than 200 Baha'is have been killed or summarily executed and thousands more jailed. During the past two years, there has been an increase in arbitrary arrests the destruction of historic religious sites, and other pressures of a type not experienced since the years immediately following the Islamic Revolution. More than 120 Baha'is await trial after having been imprisoned. A Baha'i died after 10 years in prison on charges of apostasy. The government-sponsored newspaper, Kehan, has been running a campaign of vilification on the Baha'i faith. 
One of the most ominous signs of the government's intentions was exposed on March 20 this year and has been referred to by previous speakers. The UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion or Belief made public a confidential letter from Iran's armed forces calling for Baha'is to be identified and monitored. The Anti-Defamation League called these actions reminiscent of the steps taken against Jews in Europe. On May 19, 54 Baha'is were arrested in the city of Shiraz. It was one of the largest mass arrests of Baha'is since the 1980s. The Baha'i community in Egypt traces its roots to the 1860s. In 1925, a supreme religious court of Cairo ruling was the first official recognition in the Muslim world of the Baha'i faith as an independent religion. In 1960, President Nasser signed Presidential Decree 263 banning Baha'i activities. The ban remains law today. Baha'is have faced several episodes of arrests and imprisonment, the most recent being in 2001, and remain under constant police surveillance. The Egyptian Baha'i community has diminished by 90% to 500 people. The Baha'i faith has been the subject of numerous fatwas. The most recent fatwa by the Islamic Research Academy of Al-Azhar University described the Baha'i faith as, quote, a lethal spiritual epidemic in the fight against which the state must mobilize all its contingencies to annihilate it, end quote. The crisis immediately before the Baha'is concerns identification cards that must be obtained by each Egyptian citizen by the end of 2006. The cards must be used for any type of government service and are needed to pass through police checkpoints. These cards require citizens to state one of Egypt's three recognized religions, Islam, Christianity, or Judaism. In the past, Baha'is had been permitted to leave the religious affiliation space blank to make a dash or to write other. On May 4 this year, an Egyptian administrative court found the Baha'is have the right to obtain government-issued documents that state their religion. The Ministry of the Interior appealed that ruling. The Supreme Administrative Court has suspended implementation of the ruling pending an appeal to be heard on September 16. In Egypt, the ultimate hope of the Baha'i community is the rescinding of Presidential Decree 263. Our plea is for that government to allow all of its citizens to be treated as equal. We appeal again to the Iranian government not to implement its plan to identify and monitor the Baha'is and to permit them freely to practice their religion. In conclusion, we would like to thank the U.S. government for speaking out here and at the U.N. and hope Congress will continue loudly to voice its concern for the religious freedom of all people. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Bigelow. And as we discussed earlier, um, I remember, and I was actually at the White House when President Reagan first began making the plight of the, of the Baha'i, especially in Iran, 
uh, a key issue for U.S. diplomacy. So I, I, I applaud you on your steadfast support uh, for religious freedom in general, but especially for the Baha'i uh, for all these years. And, and thank you for your testimony. You. Just a few questions, because all of your testimonies were very, very powerful and, and persuasive, uh, and gives this subcommittee and the Congress, I think, uh, much to do in follow-up. So I, I thank you for that. But uh, basically, I would like to ask all of you. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, as you mentioned, the case of the Iranian Baha'is has been on the, at the attention of the U.S. government for many, many years. Uh, President Reagan himself uh, taking a very strong leadership role. And the role of the United States, particularly at the United Nations, because we do not have bilateral relations with Iran, it makes it much more challenging. And so the United States has been invaluable working with the EU, the Canadians, and the Australians on resolutions at the United Nations. The Egyptian case is more recent uh, and is now just becoming more public. And, uh, and we are urging the U.S. government, whether it would be the White House or the State Department or Congress, to speak out more strongly about the situation th that the uh, Baha'is in Egypt face.
And now to my interview with Bertha Petrusky, a Baha'i now living on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, who spent nine years in Bulgaria. I started the interview by asking Bertha where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in a small town of Wendell that was pretty farm-oriented. <laughs> and um, I was the third oldest of 12 children, and we lived on a farm. And my parents were really very, very devoted Catholics. And also they were very, very hard workers. And that was a, those two things were probably the major impact in my life. But having had such a large family, um, there was always somebody to be your best friend and to play with. And I developed a real intense love for nature. And I loved being in the woods. I love the wild animals. And one of my earliest memories of working was when I was, I think, about five years old. I wanted to help move some chickens. And I can remember holding one chicken, one leg in each hand. It was upside down. And then carrying it from the coop to the tractor where there were crates. And my father, of course, was like, carrying 15. But anyway, it was really hard work. But that was one of my earliest memories of, of working. But, you know, growing up on a farm was full of real healthy exercise and all those kinds of things. One of the things, uh, all my brothers and sisters had a lot of work to do, responsibility. And I can remember, like, even as early as 12 years old, 14, having charge of a coop of, like, 5,000 chickens. And I became real good at, like, fixing feeders and uh, other mechanical things. My family worked really close together. And we still do nowadays. Mm-hmm. Another thing that was a real impact in my family was the religious aspect of it. Either every day we would kneel, all of us would kneel in the kitchen, and we would say the rosary. I really believe that about 99% of all accidents that could have happened didn't because of those prayers. Wow. Even as a very, very young child having this intense love for Jesus and really wanting to do what would please him, and, of course, my mom, more than my dad, seemed to be the educator of the children and, and teaching us, like, you know, to be honest, uh, to be kind, to be generous, uh, and also to have this real healthy fear of God and all the results, like if you did anything wrong, that was a sin, and if it was real bad, you could go to hell. Mm. So... Um, pretty afraid of going to hell. Um, a little bit later, when I was in the fourth grade, I changed from a uh, little public school in the center of Wendell to going to a Catholic school. And that further intensified my, my kind of love for God, my love for Jesus. And I actually wanted to become a nun and even tried uh, getting into a missionary order. Um, But I wasn't accepted, 
And um, this why, was why this was that Bertha? When I was graduating from high school. Bertha, why weren't you accepted? Oh, because the order was very, very strict, and um, they felt that I wasn't socially mature, and it was very, very wise. And and they told me to go out, get a job, or go to school out into the world. And if I really wanted to become a nun after that, to come back to them. And I really found, after going to school out in the world, that I really didn't want to become a nun. That I wanted to get married. (laughs) So I started shopping around and... Um, yeah, I liked dating, mm-hmm. so I I figured that I wanted to be out in the world working more. But you know, something interesting happened around that time. Also, I started to see like there was a dual nature of a lot of people. Well, I guess some um, religious people that I was acquainted with. I started seeing that. It was almost like a hypocrisy that that we were supposed to be doing one thing, but we were really doing the other. And somehow, if we just went to confession Saturday night, God would forgive us, and we everything would be okay. We could start again. But that didn't feel right. It didn't, it, you know, it it just wasn't right to me deep inside. And so, I went through this real questioning phase of what, you know, what was God, what was religion, what was the purpose of my life, you know, how did it all fit together, and I um, started to question so much that I became an atheist for a while. Bertha, may I interrupt? Yeah. So, how does one who was so in love with God turn to not believing in God at all? Well, I, what, what was a big, I guess, void in my mind was, like, where did God fit into all this religious stuff? And the clergy I was looking at in those role models, those very religious people, very, very few of them were exemplifying what, what um, a Christian was supposed to be. And and I, I couldn't figure out where I was supposed to be in all this, and I, and I just didn't understand, if, like, if there was really a God, was it all just a man-made thing? And mm. and so I, I was going. I guess it was part of a big questioning thing for me. Also, at that time, maybe from teenage on, there was this big void in my gut. You know, it was like this, I, w- I was starving for something, but it wasn't, the, the questions weren't being answered, and the need wasn't being fulfilled, and I would pray, and I would go to church, but it wasn't satisfying me, and 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 that contributed to this whole wanting to get away from it all. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so I just I just started questioning on every level. Mm. Then I 
started to question where was the where were the other religions fitting in? You know, this was Christianity. Where where was it for the rest of them? Mm. And I I felt like it all must be the same. There must be it's this man made kind of you know blaming things on God if things didn't work out. And you know if your life was not what you wanted, you know it was just you know God's fault. But then God wasn't there you know it wasn't real so i was in a big dilemma mm-hmm. and then um i was about when i was about 22 years old still kind of realizing that i really did believe in god but i didn't know where religion came in my sister was working Bertha? with a bunch of baha'is and she said she told me some of the principles of the, the faith and she said these these guys are really nice people you know, do you want to come with me to one of their informal talks? And I said, sure. And I really, really like the Baha'is, and I like their principles. But at the same time, trying to explain to them that I was a Christian, and my focus on religion was Jesus. And they were telling me that, you know, there were these other spiritual messengers from God, and I couldn't, I couldn't get it. I, I thought that the Baha'is had kind of blinders on, and they were just focused on their own way, and and they 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 really didn't understand what religion was all about. Mm-hmm. At least from my perspective, I mm-hmm. I couldn't see that. So I. I went to two of their talks and then took this book um, called Baha'u'llah and the New Error and just left them behind. I was going to kind of figure out my own way for religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the meantime, I got married and was pretty content in my life. And I was working at a hospital and there, were, there was this doctor there who was, he was an an eye doctor, and he was very, very different than the other doctors in that he would focus on the, the patient, and he would talk to him, and he would spend a lot of time with him, and he treated them with such respect and kindness that it was, it was very heartwarming to watch him in action. Mm-hmm. Well, I found out that he was a Baha'i, and so that kind of re-enkindled my interest in the Baha'is. So I just was watching him for a while, and one one day I needed to ride home. My car had broken down, and I was walking home, and it was really bitter cold, and this car stopped in these two women asked me if I would like a ride, and I recognized them as two of the women that worked at the hospital. They were sisters, and and I had heard that they were Baha'i. So I got in the car, and we started to chit-chat casually for a few minutes, and then I asked them if they were Baha'i. And they said yes, and I said, well, you know, I went to a few talks a few 
few years ago, and I'm feeling like I want to know more about the Baha'i faith. Had you read the book that they had oh, given you? yeah, it took me, oh, okay, this is another really important point. It took me about two years to read that book. It's not a very big book, but anyway, finally, by the end of the book, there was this chapter on progressive revelation. And when I read that what the Baha'is were trying to say, that all these spiritual teachers were coming from God, and there was just one God, and they all had their very definite place in the history of religion and the history of mankind. And according to the capacity of humanity at that age, a new teacher would come giving the, the spiritual lessons over and over again, but that he would give more uh, social teachings according to the capacity of humanity for that age. And so... Like, the Baha'is definitely believed in Jesus. And not only that, they believed in Krishna and Buddha and Zoroaster and Abraham and Moses and um, Muhammad and all of them. And Baha'u'llah was just like the latest chapter in a big book, each one, each of these messengers being one chapter in the book. And so, finally, it clicked in my mind, I could understand what the Baha'is were talking about. And so then my um, interest in the Baha'is uh, was, was really um, starting to blossom. Mm. And it was simultaneously in understanding this that I met this um, medical doctor, and then shortly after that, these two sisters. Mm-hmm. And so I was, it, time was right for me. In, in this uh, sequence of events. So I, I went to some talks. There actually was a Baha'i living one mile down the road from me in, in the house that I was living in now, married. And, and I fell in love with this Baha'i community. And then probably after about four or five months, I became a Baha'i. Mm. And I still didn't quite understand a lot of the um, aspects of the Baha'i faith, but I very much believed in this progressive revelation. I loved the principles, and I loved these Baha'is. So that, that was the beginning of my Baha'i life. And I, what, what I'd like to say about at least my beginnings as a Baha'i was, I think I was a very self-centered and egotistical person. And I understood that this was not in keeping with, with any of the um, religious spiritual teachings. And it was a very big struggle for me to be a Baha'i and, and to uh, try to conform myself to, to um, being a Baha'i. And I can remember at one point, I was, I was having a quarrel with my husband. I can remember him leaving and me sitting.
sitting in this problem, realizing that one of the basic principles of the Baha'i faith was to create family unity. So here I was having a difference with my husband, and I can remember running out into, onto the uh, lawn, sitting on the picnic table, and saying, okay, Baha'u'llah, you want me to create family unity. Now, how am I going to do that? Mm. I don't want to be whatever I have to be to create unity in this case. So, you know, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> and, of course, it was left to me to create, create unity, which, you know, was a struggle from time to time in my marriage. And, but slowly, slowly, it became easier the problems never really went away. I, it was a difficult marriage, mm. but slowly through the years, we uh, became more and more united. Mm-hmm. And on, on some levels, and on some levels like religious and spiritual principles, there really was never any unity. And um, my husband and I finally figured out that the best thing that we could do is not talk about religion. Mm. And I would say that it was very difficult. Um, But what was really beautiful about all this was that um, in raising two children, there was always this guidance about what to do for the health, the spiritual health of the children. And I think this, in essence, really formed the, you know, the, the decent, beautiful people that my sons are now. Mm. And I, I love that I was a Baha'i mm. and that I had this to bring to that marriage. I really don't even want to think about what my marriage would have been, what my children's life would have been like, and where I would be today if I weren't a Baha'i. Because not only did I have these spiritual principles to guide me, and this gradual, deep, deep love for Baha'u'llah, but I had a community that I could go to for support, and when I couldn't figure out something for myself, there were these beautiful Baha'is that were there, with love and with support and with guidance and of course always always having to seek out the truth for myself which is one of the Baha'i principles to go to those Baha'i writings and to read on a daily basis and and always to pray I mean I I loved praying as a Catholic and I love praying as a Baha'i daily frequently during the day and, and this really, I think, giving me the spiritual kind of energy and that I needed to, to, to figure out what to do for myself in these questions, in, in difficulties. Mm. I should say also that after 25 years of marriage, my, my marriage suddenly fell, fell apart. Mm. And, and I, I didn't expect this. Mm. And this really devastated me. Mm. And um, it really took me a number, well, three or four years to recover from that. Yeah. 
But in the meantime, I had this big void in my life. And at the same time, the major income job that I had moved across the country. Mm. So my life was really relatively free. My children uh, were old enough to leave home. And so I decided that I wanted to go pioneering. Now, what do you mean by pioneering? Pioneering for a Baha'i is when a Baha'i goes someplace, it can be in-country or it can be to another place in the world, to help a community become stronger in the Baha'i faith. Uh, The Baha'is do not have any clergy. So the way, one way that the faith spreads is for Baha'is to go to different locations if their community is strong, and to help integrate themselves into the community to become um, self-supporting and to help the community if it's there or if there is no community in a non-proselytizing way to spread the Baha'i faith. And so for me, I chose Bulgaria, um, which is just north of Greece and Turkey. And it, it was a community that was uh, recovering from communism. I came 13 years after the, Baha- the, um, the communism left, and the, the country was really left in poverty and confusion and grasping for what to do to survive. And unfortunately, as soon as the doors opened, there was an influx of many different religions, and they, many of them, left a very, very bad emotional and psychological mark on the people of that country. Why is that, so Bertha? Any, well, uh, there had been some really negative things that had happened. Uh, for instance, there was one religious sect that was advocating suicide. Oh. And and really, unfortunately, there were several youth that had committed suicide. And when something like that happened, because it's a small country, the whole country became alarmed by this and very, very distrustful of any religion. And so they became very, very much on guard of all religions. And, and there were other sects that were giving financial or material rewards if you became part of that religion. And in a country that was left in poverty and also confusion, many people were looking for things in a way out. And, and so many people joined a religion like that, but... Also, just in name, many of them, not really in in their heart or in their deeper psyche. So here I come, uh, 13 years later, people are very, very suspicious. I I was in the center of the country in a small small city, and any foreigner that came there was really regarded with high suspicion that they were there to proselytize a religion. And even one of the questions some 
of the Bulgarians were asked me, you know, are you an evangelical? And, you know, unfortunately for them, you know, this was one of the things that is left with leaving a mark on, you know, on foreigners that come. And I would say for me, being in a country like that was a very, very big education. I had thought that I would come and save the country. <laughs> I was extremely naive. I didn't, I'm not sure I made any mark on that country at all. I was there nine years, and I grew to love the people, and, and some of the people there grew to love me very deeply. And I opened, the way that my business was, I opened a secondary language school, primarily teaching English, and I hired Bulgarians, and so I was able to financially help some people there, but I was also regarded with high suspicion, even with the police there, and I was investigated in my school, and I was found to be not a threat religiously to the people there, but I was watched very closely. Hmm. I think, like I said, I benefited very, very greatly in that I learned, like as an American, that I had a lot of prejudice that I had no idea I had. For instance, when I first went to the country, one of the things I found myself thinking is, why can't these people learn English? <laughs> you know, why do they have to keep talking in this language that hardly anybody in the whole world can know? <laughs> and then I would also kind of wonder about some of their customs. Like, uh, I, well, one of the customs that I loved was that they they had very, very close family unity mm. and that the children respected the parents very, very much. And the parents loved the children and they loved teaching them from a very, very early age on anything that had to do with knowledge. And they were very, very eager for them to learn. For instance, for music, um, they loved music and they would teach them all kinds of music, realizing that it's very, very important to know what classical music is, but it's also very important for the child to learn what hip-hop was, hmm. and that it all kind of fit in together. They loved listening about what I had to say about religion, and they, their questions were very, very genuine and very intelligent. But they, it was very hard for them to accept any religion, many of them. The, uh, the biggest uh, religion in the country is Orthodox Christian, and uh, there are as many atheists there, um, which it was due to the communism. I understand that in order to stay in the country, you had to start a business. Yeah, in order to stay in the country, 
um, under my visa, I had to start a business. And so I really was, am not business-oriented, but there was this real beautiful Bulgarian who was a language, an English teacher. And so together we worked at what we could do, and uh, we figured out that I could open up a language school. And it really was not easy. We went from, oh, office to office, many paperwork from lawyer to lawyer, and it actually took us about a whole year to form that business, but that allowed me to stay there. And there's uh, increasing, gradually, this, this was nine years ago, there's a gradual increase in the need for learning English. And so my school at first did very, very well. And we had six English teachers, and I myself would teach uh, the more advanced and mostly in conversational English. And we would also teach other languages if, if the students needed. But gradually, over the first few years, many language schools opened. And there was such intense competition that it ended up that no school was doing well. Mm. Even the very well-known schools and the largest schools, along with the really the best of private English teachers, all of us were really suffering because of this big boom in language schools. But now, by the time I left, which was less than a year ago, English was starting to be integrated into all the curriculums of most of the schools there, starting with the, the um, nursery schools and the, the elementary schools. And even in the high schools, the, the students there, many of them can te- uh, speak English so perfectly that they will have no problems at all when they go to try to get jobs or whatever, mm. um, if, it has, if it's based on their English language. But, of course, their language has always been uh, needed. Everybody there studies languages and speaks at least two languages, many of them three or four. And I actually was friends with a man who spoke 12 languages. The Bulgarians are so intelligent, and they love learning. If they can't figure something out or if they don't know something, they will keep on searching until they find the answer to it. And that's one of the beautiful things that I, I grew to love about the Bulgarians is their thirst for knowledge and their very, very high intelligence. And another thing about them is they are very, very kind people, and they work very hard. Um, yeah, very. it was a very rich experience for me. Mm. But unfortunately, after about nine years, my finances were drained, and my school wasn't making money, and it was actually draining all my financial resources. And uh, so that, along with 
of family needs back here in the U.S., I very painfully made the decision to come back home. Mm. And having been here nine months, I can see that this is where I'm supposed to be at this time. Uh, My mother was very, very ill, suffering from colon cancer, and uh, she actually just died two months ago, uh, two weeks ago tomorrow. And the other thing that I do is take care of my grandson. So Mm. I'm here very content to be with my family and have gradually been able to start some Baha'i activity back here in the U.S. And so life seems very rich. You know, sometimes I ask, how much better can life get than being surrounded by loving family, you know, a grandson that has totally captured my heart, (laughs) you know, two sons that have grown into absolutely beautiful men, Mm. both married to this, uh, to to, two different really beautiful women, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm having been able to start high activity, life seems very, very rich on all levels. Yeah. You told me not to ask the question, what would it have been like if you hadn't become a Baha'i? But it seems unimaginable that a little farm girl from Wendell would end up going to Bulgaria in any other situation. Well, of course, if I had not become a Baha'i, I don't know that I would have traveled. Mm-hmm. Actually, I was petrified to leave the country. And actually, my first day in Bulgaria, if if I could have actually run all the way home, I would have. I, I was so petrified of being there. Of uh, course, all my fears were unfounded, but I, I was just not used to being out of the warm embrace of my family and friends. So I probably wouldn't have traveled, and I probably wouldn't have become the very, very different, actually totally, totally different person than I was when I first went there due to having been in Bulgaria. But also, I think I would have made a lot of mistakes in raising my children. I think I would have not had as much family, a marriage unity as I did even though it had problems, it, there would have been tremendous amount. Um, I think that I wouldn't have tried to keep searching out what was the better way of handling problems, N- not just with my marriage and children, but like with my brothers and sisters. You know, for instance, one of my goals early on was to really get to know my other 11 brothers and sisters like deeper and and I started really craving their company and craving you know what they thought about things and you know today I love my brothers and sisters and they love me like all of them it, I mean that's amazing yeah. and you know, I I love 
working still with my family. Of course, that would have come automatically with the with the kind of culture that I grew up in with my my brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. But also other things like, for instance, being honest. Like, you know, that's something not just honest, like on a material level, but like on a spiritual level, like really being honest deep in my heart, like, you know, not not lying to myself and not trying to make excuses for things that happen, but really grasping hardship with both hands and, and really, you know, struggling with it and, and figuring out what is the best way to deal with this in an honest way. Like, for instance, when I was in Bulgaria and in, in creating this school, like, you know, it's very, very typical for people to be dishonest there. It's, it's just a cultural norm there. And, and so many times I could have been dishonest and made things much easier. But I couldn't as a Baha'i. Mm. And so I had to do things the honest way, which was much more timely and also financially much more difficult. Mm. But in the end, you know, th- this was the honest way, so this is what had to be done. Right. One of the things I loved doing with the Baha'is was prayer meetings. And, like, in the community that I was in from the beginning, that community, the Baha'is there, loved to pray. And so we started these public prayer meetings. And, you know, there were not a whole lot of people that came, but it was a wonderful experience, and it's something that that community still does today. Mm. I also was able to do some Baha'i courses, which are called Rui courses, um, which teach Baha'is how to be a a Baha'i, like who is Baha'u'llah, what is prayer, and also the meaning of life and death. And this is kind of an education that's ongoing in the Baha'i world. Another thing that I was able to do there is start um, some children's classes. Mm. And and this was really a lot of fun. There were the children of the Baha'is and also the uh, the the friends that I had who were not Baha'i. Uh, some of them wanted their children to go to these Baha'i classes, and they loved them because these classes were teaching the children the moral education. Mm. And so... So actually, this is ongoing still, and so that I was—I can't say that I'm solely responsible, but it, you know, was Baha'i inspired, mm-hmm. and so and that is ongoing today as well yeah. here, and so I am able to do this here in this country also, mm. and uh, I, I'm doing the prayer meetings, and I'm doing Rui classes. Mm-hmm. And I've also started there and here some virtues project classes where uh, one virtue per class is taken, like honesty or humility or courage. 
and we explore what that is, you know, how do we implement it in our life, and, you know, why, why do we want to do that anyway? And so it, this, is, this whole project was started by uh, uh, three Baha'is uh, trying to help the greater world uh, who, you know, care for the education of their children. The Virtues Project? The Virtues Project, yeah. Yeah, my daughter made me aware of the website virtueoftheweek.org. Yes. And also the Virtues Project, you know, I, I, there's, um, it's, yeah, very well publicized over Internet. Is that the curriculum you use? I use the Virtues Project. Mm-hmm. The virtues of a week may be an offshoot of that. Yeah, I believe it's part of the virtues project. Yeah, it it provides a curriculum where you can present a virtue once a week in your classes for children. Yeah, and there's also books available on um, mm-hmm. the virtues project, mm-hmm. uh, family guide. These are available in most bookstores mm-hmm. or can be ordered pretty easily. Mm-hmm. It's a great project for people, if you don't want to be a part of any religion, this is a very beautiful moral guidance for your, for your child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my daughter has used it for elementary age kids and also for middle school age kids. Yeah, and not only that, it's really great for adults as well. Mm-hmm. That was another thing I did in Bulgaria with another Baha'i there, we started adult virtues classes for professionals. Mm. And so at one point we had up to 15 different professionals, anywhere from teachers to psychologists to there is a very famous singer. You know, it, it went very well for about two years, mm. the last two years that I was there. Yeah. And we also started the virtues classes in... A, the largest high school in Sofia, and we had eight different grades that we were teaching for a year, and I'm sure that that made an impact. You know, giving giving the youth and the children insight that they have a choice to do something that is better or to just do what everybody else was doing, and oftentimes the easier way out. You must have had some pretty interesting discussions when you say that, you know, the culture is sort of includes, you know, a little bit of white lying and dishonesty and that kind of thing, and the kind of virtues that are being promoted in the curriculum. Yeah, well, that, you know, under the the virtue of honesty, the whole issue of white lying, you know, what is a white lie and, you know, can we really do that? And, you know, there is no question in most people's mind that, including the Bulgarians, that this is perfectly acceptable. Mm -hmm. But when you start exploring, like, what is honesty and like in a really deep level and how do you want to conduct your own life and like do you really want to be honest with yourself you have to make some really big choices and sometimes 
these cost you friendships. Some, it's sometimes it puts you in pretty uncomfortable situations, but you have to make choices of whether you're going to do this or not. And um, another thing, not only with honesty, but with all the virtues, it's important for people to realize that, you know, it's very difficult for humans to change all at once, and that working on things gradually is the way that most people accomplish things. So if we are telling lies, and this is normal for us, the one way to do it is to start checking yourself when you do it if you can't stop all at once Mm. and then gradually put things in place so that you'll not be doing this Mm. for instance one way to do it is if you're if you tell a lie you can and you realize you've done that then you can say oh wait a minute i made a mistake this is what i meant to say and so gradually you're teaching yourself to catch yourself before you do it. That's um, a, yeah, that's a great strategy. Yeah, yeah. And it's the same with all, with stealing, with, um, you know, any, with anything. You know, all the virtues. Mm. Not just as kids, but as adults. Like, you know, I'm 61, and I'm still working very much on a lot of these virtues. Mm. I've come a long, long way in my almost... 40 years of being a Baha'i, but I still I still have many that I'm working on, and I love that it's getting easier, and that, you know, practice makes it a little bit easier, and, and you gain on it, and, you know, you look back over where you were 30, 40 years ago, and you can uh, say, yeah, yeah, this struggle was worth it. I, I like how far I've come. Mm. But I know I've got more to work on. Yeah. Well, Bertha, thank you very much. You're welcome, Warren. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Bertha Petrusky, a Baha'i now living on Cape Cod in Massachusetts who spent nine years in Bulgaria. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.